0: Hello, you're listening to Thoughtstarters, a podcast on the business of creativity recorded at the pod at White City Place. Today, we delve into the world of digital publishing with two editors at the top of their game for two of the most notable women-focused publications out there, industry-leading digital magazine Refinery29 and one of the names in fashion, British Vogue. And so much is changing in their business wanting and needing to welcome in a more diverse audience, as one example. Plus, a broader scope, a new tone of voice, and capturing attention in an ever more cluttered landscape of content creators. Without further ado, let's meet our conversationalists.
1: I'm Sarah Raphael, and I'm the Editor-at-Large of Refinery29.
0: I'm Alice Casey hayford and I'm the Digital Editor at British Vogue. Sarah is Editor-at-Large of Refinery29, the leading digital media company for women. She was previously acting editor of British Style magazine ID and has written for numerous publications, including The Guardian, Vice, Elle and Dazed. In March of this year, Alice was appointed digital editor of British Vogue under its pioneering new editor, Edward Enninful. She'll play an important role of the magazine's new direction as they tackle the digital realm with fresh gusto and lead the charge for more diversity within the industry. Alice was previously a colleague of Sarah's at Refinery29, where she was fashion and beauty director.
1: So, we're talking about women's media and women's uh, magazines, digital and print, I was wondering what you grew up reading, Alice. What was the, what the kind of teen mags that you were into? I was an avid reader of
2: Ms. Magazine as a preteen, and then that evolved into J seventeen,
1: mm-hmm.
2: which I was felt, just.
1: Was it just seventeen? J seventeen. I'm
2: a few years younger. Maybe I transitioned into <laughs> J seventeen by the time I read it.
1: But it's an early dig.
2: <laughs> but um, it was one of few publications that I felt as a young person. Um, truly represented myself I could see myself reflected in the images Um, it spoke about things I was interested in whereas some of the other publications felt quite perhaps not elitist but certainly exclusive and I didn't feel a part of those conversations and that was from very early on part of the reason why I wanted to become a writer whether it was novels or uh, teen magazines if I couldn't see myself um that was incredibly frustrating as a young person and it motivated me to want to create something although I probably didn't know the word inclusive at the time but something that was more representative so it could appeal to people like me mm. what about you what were you reading
1: also I thought it was just 17 and maybe j17 for the young younger <laughs> women um and Bliss, and I was into a lot of music magazines, like Q, mm-hmm. that wasn't, yeah, and um, Smash Hits, mm-hmm. and I was mainly just into pop stars mm-hmm. on the cover and fold-out posters. And I would spend ages in WH Myths, it was like seeing if the new issue was out of whatever music thing I was into, and yeah, I think my expectations were quite low mm-hmm. as a teen. I quite enjoyed reading kind of advice columns. Yeah personality quizzes, kind of fun, bite-sized content. I remember some, um, I specifically remember two pieces of advice I got from teen girl magazines. One of them was, if you don't have time to brush your teeth, why don't you have an apple? Great, fantastic (laughs) advice. And another one was, if you fancy a boy at school, then try wearing a spaghetti strap top and uh, when you're in conversation with him, let the d- purposefully let the spaghetti strap drop down your shoulder and then be like, oops, and put it back <laughs>
2: on. Another sound piece of advice. <laughs> but it is quite remarkable. However, just 15 or so years, perhaps even less, the nature of women's media has evolved and developed so monumentally. <laughs> <laughs> and thankfully, we don't have to read that drivel Anymore, and it's completely yeah. irrelevant and redundant. And hopefully, women are spoken to in a way that is far less patronising. Um, I
1: hope so, and I'm excited to see what the next generation, if they're reading things like Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls and mm. uh, media that has been um, curated and uh, edited and written like with a much more representative. Mm view in mind. I wonder what they'll go on to think and do and if they'll have the same insecurities we had growing Mm. up or not. Um, Yeah, so I read into those magazines and then maybe around 15, started reading Elle Mm. and Vogue. Um, I didn't really understand what I was reading. Did Mm. you read those magazines when you were a teen? Not so much. They would
2: be lying around the house, but... It was more the IDs and the days of the world that I did begin to read. I think, which being, is
1: ironic because <laughs> yes, <laughs> because you're now know I the district trip bike, and I was actually <laughs> yes. acting editor of ID, but we exactly. read each other's. We mm. did.
2: Um, I think being a Londoner, um, ID and days felt particularly pertinent and capturing the zeitgeist of the world that I in li- the space that I moved around in. Um, but I think going back to the point earlier, it is remarkable because even up until quite recently, we were reading, I know I was reading trash, like How to Please Your Man and mm-hmm. How to Get a Beach Bod. And that's really only kind of been eradicated in the past few years. Recently, mm.
1: yeah. Yeah. Um I was reading your Gaudome interview, mm. which was excellent, where you talk about representation. Mm. Um, and you've obviously just spoken about that. Did how aware were of it were you when you were growing up and what are the things that you read that oh it was like not, books and authors and things as well. Yeah,
2: I think not feeling a part of a bigger movement, whereas I think all of my friends could plait their hair and put in the hair clips um that they saw modelled in the pages of Miz and I couldn't um engage in those obvious hair trends. Um so even though I probably wasn't hugely aware of it Later upon reflection, I could see how much that shaped my sense of self and my identity. And it was a constant niggling feeling that I only was able to truly understand when I was probably about 16. And I read White Teeth when it first came out. And I was probably, don't quote me, although I'm saying this live now, (laughs) maybe 12 or 13, but maybe that's wrong. Um, But it was the first time that I fully identified with a heroine or a protagonist in a novel and that really really changed my life and then when I was 21 I then wrote my dissertation about white teeth and the impact on um, dual heritage and sense of self and identity and woven um, equations, Black Gold of the Sun which is another fantastic book that shaped me and a lot of Haneef Qureshi's work so it was more through literature rather than magazines that I really found myself represented and decided that there was a huge void or gulf that needed to be filled quite urgently. And Mm. that was um, something that I think a lot of journalists had the responsibility to do, but perhaps certain ones didn't care that they weren't, I'm not going to name any names. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you were saying that Elle and Vogue were magazines that you read as a teen, but you didn't necessarily get what was in the, it didn't really relate or. I, just, I think I
1: just looked at the pictures right. mainly. Yeah. Like, I wasn't, um yeah, I didn't really understand what a byline was or who mm. was writing or what or where it was going. I just like looking at like Tim Walker shoots, for instance. Yep, I remember looking course. at them in vogue and being like, wow, mm. like so impressive and exciting mm. as a young girl. I think I was, I much more read them for. The imagery mm. and kind of the, the gloss. And mm. I just felt, I guess it made me feel grown up. Or... So how is it
2: that you ended up in fashion media? Primarily, obviously, ID and then still sort of binary.
1: Um, well, I did an English lit degree. We both did mm-hmm. them in London. Um, and then I did, um, I was either going to be a lawyer wow, or, I that. or the route I went down. I wanted to do fashion design, mm-hmm. but my dad didn't understand that, so yep. he said no. Um, so yeah, then I did a master's in fashion journalism at London College of Fashion, which I didn't really know what I was doing mm-hmm. there. My tutor said that he thought I was a real geek, and the only reason that he put me on the course because he thought I was clever, but knew nothing about fashion, right. um, which was great to hear. <laughs> <And> he, <yeah. laughs> Um, But then I had an amazing time on that Mm. course and I really, really loved it and kind of, I loved it from an outsider's perspective. Mm. Like I'd always been into the imagery, but I didn't know people's names. I didn't know photographers' names. I didn't know Mm. stylists' names. I didn't know what what a stylist did. Like Mm. I didn't know any of these things. So it was really... um, Mm. I was probably one of the only people on that course of about 20 people who didn't know this stuff. So Mm -hmm. it was quite scary to me being on the course and everyone talking about all these Mm -hmm. names I'd never heard of and kind of making references to magazines I'd never heard of. Like I didn't know what pop was when Mm -hmm. I was at university. And then so discovering it all with a fresh eye was really, um, yeah, I was just so uh, enraptured by that world. Mm -hmm. And then, Started interning and then, you know, one thing leads to another and then I ended up um, interning ID and then um, did that for a few months. And then there was a spot open for an online editorial assistant because they were about to launch the website. Uh, And yeah, so so began my career after that. How did you end up working in journalism? Well, I think it's really interesting because
2: you said it was a whole new world to you. And for me, it was kind of coursing through my veins and... I tried on many occasions not to get into fashion and my parents pleaded with me that I wouldn't, but alas, here I am, so (laughs) it's mum and dad. Um, but I think from a very young age, I knew that I wanted to be a writer and I had grand ideas of being a really well-respected features writer on a broadsheet or something, but that hasn't quite happened. But, um, I am delighted to be working in the fashion industry now. Um, I don't think it's ever been a a more exciting kind of juncture or period. And, um, Yeah, I guess it was inevitable because my parents work in fashion and my brother works in fashion. But um, I feel I've kind of carved my own path that's quite separate to them Mm. and I don't think I could, wouldn't ever be able to work with my family. Mm. Um, But it is really special and rewarding to work in the same field as my family, as your brother does with your father, which is amazing as well. Um, But it's nice for there to be an overlap and we can talk about it, but also it's separate enough that it's not all-consuming.
1: Yeah. Yeah, um, but so you worked at Tatler first, mm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So Condé Nast, yeah, and then I mean, I'd, you should maybe say your your trajectory. Yeah, in shall. my mind, you Tatler, I feel you did know quite well. Hunger, yeah, refinery as um, fashion editor, and then fashion director, exactly. And Vogue as mm-hmm. digital editor. Mm-hmm. What is what are your days like as a digital editor of Vogue?
2: Um, Action packed, to say the least. <laughs> um, It's strange because I thought at Refinery, I was as invested as one could be in a job. But I think, bloody hell, wow, now this is a new level. Um, Because it's just a whole new level of responsibility and there's so much going on simultaneously. It is quite relentless, but in the most exciting way possible. Um, So... Some days it will just be back-to-back meetings and it will get to 5.30 and I'm like, good God, I haven't even sat down at my desk yet today or opened my notebook or done any of the things on my to-do list. But I think what we both love about digital, albeit which other people might hate, is that it is just constant and I love how reactive it is and particularly what I learned at Refinery is how immediate it is in the sense of community in that you're constantly engaging in what feels like a more reciprocal relationship, more so than print. Um and I think that's why I don't personally think I'd ever return to print because that is really magical to be a part of a community online and to learn from what your readers love and loathe and to constantly tweak and evolve. Um, do you agree? Um,
1: <laughs> I do like the interactive nature. Mm. I like that you can read all the comments and people do comment and people are mm. very engaged when they're good. Mm. <laughs> but when you write something and people write li- really negative comments underneath it, then that d- that does affect me and I think Does that still affect that you? Hard. Yeah, absolutely. Really? I don't I don't think it'll ever not affect wow. me. I think I have a very brittle sense yeah. of self. <laughs> <laughs> and you know,
2: I think I I grew a very thick skin at uh, refinery because it's one of the most engaged audiences on the internet, I yeah. think. And They are so savvy and they are so clued up and they will rip you to shreds. They will also raise you up and praise you when you're doing something brilliant, but they will call you out. And I think that's remarkable. But I also, I will never not listen to our reader and take into account what they say. But I think sometimes it is silly and sometimes it is too personal. So you do have to just draw the line. Easier said than done. And I did cry myself to sleep, of course. There's (laughs) some real corkers out there that are quite harsh. But
1: yeah. I find it it's interesting that parcel. so many websites don't have don't mm-hmm. have comments now, or even ones that did have comments before have got rid of the comments. Mm-hmm. That is an interesting, um, yeah, debate. Uh, but yeah, I, I think comments, even if they hurt at the time, mm-hmm. they do they do make you think about it mm-hmm. in a different way and give you a, do, mm-hmm. a new perspective, which is important. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I I do like the community aspect. Mm-hmm. It is so satisfying mm-hmm. to write something, have it online, read people's comments. If people share it, it's amazing. Like, it's very satisfying experience and it's very quick. And mm-hmm. I do like that. You don't mm-hmm. have to wait ages. But, but still, something does appeal to me about writing a print piece of, of never course. really know what people think. Well, exactly. Which you st- you still can now, obviously. Or never to knowing itself, but...
2: how many people will read it. Whereas yeah. you can see on <laughs> Google Analytics,
1: that's
0: yeah.
2: mere two double figures of people that have read your article. So it can be yeah. quite crushing. But then I think you can learn from that so quickly. Whereas with print, you can kind of just glide on in a more separate world, not ever really touching your readers in a certain way, I think. Not touch that. Don't <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: What do you find uh, the most stressful, stressful parts of the job? Obviously, being a digital editor mm. is very stressful. What stresses um, you out? What elements? Well,
2: I think even now, uh, in the summer months, there's a dearth of news, particularly in fashion, it feels like half the fashion world has gone on holiday. So constantly finding new content, it's relentless. We can always write more. And sometimes I just don't want to have to come up with a new idea. And I just want to go and sit down and close my eyes and shut out the world. But you have to constantly come up with newness. And some days that feels really impossible when the internet feels barren and there's nothing happening in the world. Um, So I think that's one of the most tiring things. Um, What do you think?
1: Um, I find public speaking very stressful.
2: Mm. You've got so much better at that. Look at you flying
1: now. But this is not really public <laughs> True. yet. It just feels like speaking. Mm. Um, no, I find it really stressful. And I find the expectation of that stressful. So of now if you are working in working media, kind of at most levels, but at management managerial level, definitely, mm. you're expected to be like a jack-of-all-trades in the Mm -hmm. sense that uh you have to be you know in in the traditional sense you're if you if you're a journalist you're behind your laptop you're Mm -hmm. writing and you you're it can attract introverted characters Mm -hmm. perhaps because Mm -hmm. they feel comfortable like um expressing themselves in words rather Mm -hmm. than out loud and i think with the internet and the way the industry is moving now everyone has to be front-facing and you're expected Mm -hmm. to host panels and Mm -hmm. um give talks and uh yeah, I find Actually, that I still find that very stressful. Exactly, I completely agree. I think
2: being a constant brand ambassador or representative, not even just in panel talks, but people will slide into my DMs and ask me for about questions or advice as a student and or will stop me even in the street or and I find that quite overwhelming because Mm. i started in this industry 10 years ago as a writer and it was quite um anonymous then and now to have to i'm not by any means saying i'm a public figure but having to constantly engage with people and be on call at all times and i feel yeah it can be quite nervous because you never want to slip up and especially even just responding to someone's dm i want to ensure that i say the right thing and um I, in an ideal world, would have a private Instagram and not have the obligation to tweet certain things. And But that's not possible. Would you? Definitely. Um, I'm quite uncomfortable with sharing my family or even my boyfriend on Instagram and for people to constantly have access to every facet of my life or even just to be able to Instagram message you at any time of the day. Mm. I don't really think that's fair. And for a PR to have emailed you and then you didn't respond to their email and then to slide into your DMs, <clears throat> I just think
1: that's too that, much. I find that really hard. And I think te- technology is obviously to blame for that. And there's mm. in, I was reading an article about, uh, I think Denmark, but again, mm. don't put me on that, where <laughs> email culture stops at a certain time of the yeah. day and you can't get in touch with people mm. after that. Whereas now, uh, yeah, people can get in touch with you. Anytime, and people pitch me articles on WhatsApp, Facebook mm-hmm. Messenger. I get tagged in other people's Facebook statuses. If mm-hmm. someone's a random person, it's like, I want to write this story, that I get tagged in the post, and then it's it's kind of all angles. And therefore, <clears throat> when you're, um, it's on your personal uh, channels and in your personal space, then it, mm. the lines <clears throat> completely blur between exactly. work and life.
2: How do you, if ever, switch off and how do you know when to draw the line or when you're on holiday, do you fully not respond to emails because I need to find that balance? No,
1: I check check my emails every time I pick up my phone. Mm -hmm. I check everything every time I pick up my phone, which is even I'm so addicted to my phone and I know... I have real bad insomnia and I know that the blue light is bad and I have to put my phone on the other side of the room, but I never do that because I'm so addicted and I just lie in bed and I open all of my apps and then I close them all, Mm -hmm. even like City Mapper, when I'm just in bed. Oh, wow,
2: that's too much.
1: (laughs) I just open it and then I close it and then once I've opened them all and nothing's happened, then I'll just go around again and open them all again and then start watching ASMR for two hours. And I feel like there is no... I don't, yeah, I I find it very hard Mm. to switch off and I just automatically check my emails and I can't, Mm. I can't help it. I don't really mind though, because in some ways it's just, it gives you peace of mind because...
2: Yeah, I think it's tricky though, with both in senior positions to, it may be okay for us to check our emails at all hours of the day, but I really, when I moved to Vogue, wanted to create a culture. Obviously I'm working and you are with some of the best people in the industry, so naturally they're going to be enthusiastic and passionate, but... I also don't want it be, to be at the detriment to my family or my mm. boyfriend, who every time I come home and he's made dinner and then I'm just scrolling through emails and responding. So it's really important to find that balance. And even if I can't, which I definitely can't, but ensuring that my team are working, aren't working every hour of the day, and are able to have their life. Their life. Yeah, <laughs>
0: exactly. You're listening to Thought Starters, recorded at the Pod at White City Place. In conversation today are Sarah Raphael, editor-at-large of Refinery29, and Alice Casely-Hayford, digital editor at British Vogue.
2: I think moving, going from Refinery, which is, you know, the front-runner in terms of the digital landscape, it is the most... Brilliant, brilliant media platform to going to an institution that has been around for 102 years, they couldn't really be more mm. polarized. And I think hopefully being instrumental in elevating the digital offering and proving to not only people within the industry but the world at large that um, Vogue is a brand, it's not just a magazine. Vogue, the magazine is, of course, the beating heart of the brand, but whether you're coming in via social media from Iceland and scrolling through on Instagram or you come across the site or you see us on YouTube and find a video. There are so many other facets that enrich the brand in so many ways. And I think being able to elevate that and grow it um, has been a mammoth task but been an incredible challenge. And I'm really excited to see what's to come because I feel I've only scratched the surface. Mm. And you?
1: (laughs) 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 Touche? um about refinery yeah um well i love refinery 29 i think it's a really fun well it's a very fun place to work and it's very um yeah it is amazing to work in a very supportive uh group of women and everyone supports each other and it Mm. is by by nature of being a startup we started with two people Mm. you remember like there was only a few of us and now it's nearly 50 in the London office, and there's obviously Berlin, and America's continuing to grow. Um, so I've, I've really, really enjoyed that process of watching it grow, mm. um, just as an observer of a business mm. that's been very successful and to see why it's been successful and what, mm-hmm. how the culture has um, influenced that. Um, and it's, yeah, felt very much like a family. Um, and I think they, being a digital first company, they do take a lot of risks Mm. and they kind of um adapt to survive Mm -hmm. um and that's really interesting uh as a model for success um and they've you know they gave us a lot of freedom when Mm. we started and there's still so much freedom we can kind of yeah take risks with content and try out new writers and um just try things out and see Mm. if they work and if they don't then we can adapt them and i really like that um Dynamic way of working, even though it's very fast-paced, and you do it is, you know, your job expands all the time, mm. and so you have to just keep on trying new things and getting new skills. Mm. But I think, yeah, that is a fun experience, and I'm very proud of, um, like representing minority mm-hmm. perspectives and stories. I think Refinery has done that really successfully. Obviously, Now Vogue has been doing that so successfully. Mm. Are you afraid working as an as an editor of call out culture and the things that you commission?
2: Definitely. It's certainly not as much a part of the culture at Vogue as it is at Refinery29. And I am so uh, in awe of the way that Refinery is able to take those risks and be so bold and brave. But that isn't an intrinsic or inherent part of Vogue, and I don't think it ever will be. But I do think there's certainly scope to change the way in which we work and the kind of the way we approach things and tackle things and one of edward our editor-in-chief's sort of mission statements is to have a diversity of perspective and that definitely wasn't a key priority before he started and so to have a wealth of different voices which we've definitely brought in over the past few months is more important to us than calling people out but we do it, but in a vogue way. Maybe <laughs> do you? Do you? Is that something that's very important to you? And how do you? Does it ever make you? I don't know. It's a challenge. It's a really challenging thing to do, but it's obviously yeah, so exciting. And when is. you nail it and create a, a movement as such, or yeah, yeah I think
1: you just have to be so careful, obviously, mm-hmm. and take all the uh, legalities of what you're doing and saying into account. Mm-hmm. Um I think aspect of call out culture which scares me is when refineries writers get called out like for instance we have a trans woman and an activist and a writer who writes Mm. regularly and she's brilliant and she writes her personal story Mm. um, and I love her pieces they're so um, emotional and just beautiful and articulate Mm. and she's in her 50s so she Mm. has loads of experience and I like hearing that perspective but sometimes she'll pitch me an article and say I want to write about uh, you know whatever the um, latest uh, like you know the emojis with mm. the trans community and like um, you know whatever reports come out um, documenting the experience of trans people um, and then I'll say yes that sounds great um, and then she'll say actually I need I don't have the kind of strength to do it mm. now like I'm not I'm not prepared for the trolling mm. and the abuse I need to just kind of uh, lay low for a little bit mm. and that I find really scary because if you are taking risks with content the mm. people who are writing the content are taking a big risk too sometimes yeah. and you, uh, yeah you have to have such an ethic skin mm. but I think
2: not in the Refining29 way, but call-out culture is one of the worst aspects of the internet in terms of it often feels like there's a witch hunt to trip people up. And even whether that's before I started at Vogue, I've told you before, I think, but I trawled through every tweet I have ever tweeted to check that I hadn't said anything out of line. And thank God obviously I hadn't. Obviously I hadn't, but <laughs> no, I like, this, is wrong. <laughs> this shouldn't have to be something that I'm bricking it about someone will see a tweet from 2012 mm. and then i lose my job over I just, I just think that's quite a frightening aspect and the whole notion of being someone being cancelled we're all human we're all fallible and it's just the way it's such mob mentality on twitter and instagram and mm. uh, yeah i'm reading
0: um john ronson's
1: me. book so you've been publicly shamed which is all about this mm-hmm. so he goes and interviews um Justine Sacker and, like, mm. loads of, uh, yeah, people who have said things on Twitter or written things and then Twitter's reacted and how it's, like, ruined their lives Completely. in many instances. Um, yeah, and it's fascinating. and it talks about shame um, with social media, but also in general when it interviews, like, uh, judges who have sentenced people who've committed crimes to stand outside with a sign that says, I stole from the shop. And it's all about the concept of shame and how it's, like, a very, very old... Um, what is it really emotion of mm. feeling mm. Um, that people have inflicted on one another and how social media has like disamplified that feeling mm. and everyone is uh, yeah could could be a, vic- a victim of online mm. shaming and it has such devastating effects
2: Yesterday a um, respected very respected editor of an American publication which I won't name because they are within the stable that I work in but um said that in an interview that um, hopefully things are kind of post-digital now and that we're moving away from the need to churn out lots and lots of content that will reach 10 million people who don't have a penny in their pocket and I just found that really sad that there was still such a snobbery towards print media and of course I completely am so respectful of print media and I think that there's definitely space for the two of them and it was just sad that someone who is the editor or at least has a team beneath him who work for a website, um, was completely negating the importance of digital um, and suggesting that we'd move back to a time where only print existed.
1: But print's failing in it so <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> And his magazine's
2: about to be bought, so it was yeah. just strange that he would say something so arrogant and yeah. snobbish. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. Part of me does miss print. Mm. Um from working at ID just because I really it's kind of like yeah an art project every time Mm. and I do we've spoken about this before Mm. like you can spend so long writing an article and you're so proud of it and you think it's great but it is gone like it's it's, it happens quickly and it's over and it's no longer on the Mm. homepage and as an editor that's fine and you just move with it Mm. but as a writer if you've written it or you're really really proud of it you kind of it's hard to move on so Mm. fast all the time Mm. and you could never really savour uh, things in that sense, which is a good and a bad thing, but yeah, I do I really loved the issues of ID that I edited, like, having them and, uh, yeah, kind of yeah, I I think print is uh, lovely and I may well go back to print one yeah. day
2: I think I'm I'm in the process of interviewing at the moment and now a lot of the people they bring in, they show off their p- portfolio on an iPad and <laughs> <laughs> I just It's a no It's a no,
1: <laughs> So, in, a, in the span of our lifetime, mm. since we were girls, we talked about what a women's media was like then, mm. like very, yeah, how to please your man mm-hmm. and what to um, do to flirt with uh, whoever you wanted to flirt with. Um, how much we've seen that change hugely. Mm. How much do you think things will change, or women's media specifically, will change? Do you think it will change dramatically in the next 10 years, or do you think it oh. will kind of stay at the level?
2: Oh, absolutely. We're at? I think there's still so much scope for things to progress we're going in the right direction but even in terms of not to constantly talk about my blackness which I do um but you know for the past 10 years I was one of very few fashion editors at the shows and I still think in terms of street style you definitely I know that certain photographers don't want to take my picture and it's just the same people not that I'm saying I'm the best dressed or anything but it's very (laughs) much a certain type of woman that is still Mm. um being plugged as the ideal Um, I think there's so much scope for things to change Um, I really want to see a broader range of writers um, not necessarily just on Vogue or certainly not on Refinery because you have a great diverse range of writers but in all of the other leading publications I think that there's still so much more room for more diversity of perspective um, and that's urgent so I hope in the next 10 years we'll definitely see that. What do you think? Do you think there's still room for more?
1: absolutely <laughs> yeah and I think yeah I was when you left I fri- was very sad but I was so excited to see what you were going to mm-hmm. do at Vogue and I'm really enjoying watching you do it like mm-hmm. it's amazing um, yeah I will be watching you for, to see what happens and I think uh, yeah women's media is a very exciting place mm-hmm. like it used to, it had so many um, people criticised it as being kind of frivolous and unimportant for so mm-hmm. long and now we're like at the f- we're at the, the front line we are the front line mm-hmm. and that 's like amazing, and more, the more the women 's issues are in the public eye and the, you know the more kind of you know, women 's media has this power to actually affect change mm-hmm. in kind of politics and policy and the world and culture and social problems and I think that will be like an amazing thing for women 's media mm-hmm. to achieve. I think also what will be really interesting is to see how other industries catch up um, like advertising for instance Absolutely. and all of the very damaging uh, portrayals and images and messages about women and of women mm-hmm. that are on billboards still everywhere mm-hmm. and tubes and everything and I think seeing how the advertising industry respond to the kind of global women's movement will be really interesting and that will spark a whole new um, direction of content for us because instead
0: of calling them out maybe we'll be celebrating
2: yeah
0: That was Sarah Raphael, the editor-at-large of Refinery29, and Alice Casely Hayford, the digital editor at British Vogue. This has been Thought Starters, recorded in the pod at White City Place. Thought Starters is a Janica project for White City Place, produced by David Michon, recorded and edited by Sean Cook. To find out how you can record your own podcast at White City Place, Find us at whitecityplace.com, on Twitter or Instagram at the handle at whitecityplace, or shoot us an email at podcast at whitecityplace.com. And subscribe to stars on iTunes, Acast, or Stitcher. Give us a rating, write us a comment. It really helps. We'll see you next time.